0: Okay, if we've got a monitor over in Zone 1, we're ready to, we're ready to start.
1: Yes. Um, thank you very much. My name is Maria Nicholas Kelly. I'm from Tacoma, Washington. And my husband and I have rather different investment approaches. And in 1988, he bought me one share of Berkshire so that I could learn something about investing we both started about that same time and he has uh, chosen to invest in let's say about forty different stocks and buying and selling and doing rather well for us frankly uh... my approach is more simple and um... basically i finally figured out last year that i should invest in the companies of the two wealthiest men in the world so (laughs) I decided we should buy monthly uh, more Berkshire and Microsoft. So then this year, and and so we've been able to do that, this year we read in your report that Berkshire is selling at a price at which Charlie and I would not consider buying it. So my husband has challenged my investment strategy. I know that you are an honest man and while you may not (laughs) You may not recommend to my partner, Charlie, to buy more Berkshire at this time. Do you recommend that I continue my rather automatic investment buying of Berkshire? And I wanted, I think I know the answer, but I wanted my husband to hear it from the horse's mouth.
0: I think you're using me here. <laughs> what? Well, I, I, I certainly, I, I, we don't recommend selling it, but we don't recommend buying it either. We're, we're, we, we are, we are neutral on that subject, and I hope, I hope you continue to be in with the two wealthiest guys. I like the other fellow too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: Zone two.
1: Mr. Buffett, no. I am Harriet Morton from the Emerald City, the same area, the land of Microsoft. And I have a couple small questions. The first one is recognizing your lack of interest in technology or sense of familiarity with it. I'm wondering if you'd give a few comments on Bill Gates as a manager. But the second one, dealing with a business that you're familiar with, has to do with American Express. Would you comment on American Express's strategy to deal with their declining market share in the credit card industry and the rising importance of debt
0: cards? Thank you. I'm not sure I got that entirely, Charlie, did you? I mean, but I got the part about the American Ex-
3: Gates is a manager and American Express as, as yeah. the problems in declining yeah. in market share.
0: Well, the first part is very easy. Uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates is, is uh, you know, one of the great managers of all time and uh, is an exceptional business talent who loves his business. And when you get that combination, Uh, and a high energy level and uh, now an error to leave it to. Uh, I I, I, uh, I don't think you do much better than that. Uh, American Express is, uh, you know, has has slipped uh, over from where they were 20 years ago, obviously in the credit card business, and uh, I think uh, they may have taken their customer a little bit for granted for a while. I think Harvey Golub is very focused on on correcting that and uh, uh, has made some progress. But the credit card business is is a very different competitive struggle now than it was uh, 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, interestingly enough, American Express itself backed into the business because the, they were worried about uh, uh, what was going to happen to their traveler's check business originally, and they saw Diners Club come along, uh, fellow named Ralph Schneider. and. Uh, uh, start in and they they saw the inroads that were being made so they the, the credit card was a reactive move uh, and for a while um, They really dominated the field and of course they still dominate the travel and entertainment part of it But credit cards are going to be a very competitive business over time and you need to establish uh, Or American Express needs to establish special special value for its card in some way uh, or it's it gets more commodity like it. Uh, it's not an easy business, but they're franchi- they've, they've got a strong franchise. It is not what it was uh, twenty years ago relative to the competition. Zone three. Good afternoon. Uh, my
4: name is John Weaver. I'm a, a shareholder from Bellingham, Washington. Um, you have discussed what a wonderful business is. Um, one of the criteria in your acquisition uh, page, 23 of your annual report, is management. Could you discuss uh, how you decide what good management is, and how you decide whether you have a good
0: manager? The really great business is one that doesn't require good management. I mean, that is, that's a terrific business. And the, the, uh, the poor business is one that can only succeed or even survive with great management. And uh, uh, but we look we look for people that know their businesses, love their businesses, love their shareholders, want to treat them as as, as partners. and uh, we still look to the underlying business though. we, we uh, uh, if, if we have somebody that we think is extraordinary, but they're locked into one of those terrible businesses because we've been in some terrible businesses, and and you know the best thing you can do, Probably is get out of it and and get into something else. But there's an enormous difference, frankly. There's an enormous difference in the talent of American business managers. Uh, The CEOs of the Fortune 500 are not selected like 500 members of the American Olympic track and field team. Uh, and, And it is not the same process. And you do not have the uniformity of top quality that you get with the American Olympic team. In any sport, uh, you do you do not get that in in, in 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 top management in American business. You get some very able people, some terrific people, like a Bill Gates that we just mentioned, but you get you get a lot of mediocrity too. And uh, uh, the test, uh, I think, in some cases that it's fairly identifiable uh, who. Has done an extraordinary job, and we like people that have batted 350 or 360 in terms of predicting that they're going to bat over 300 in the future. And some guy says, you know, I batted 127 last year, but I've got a new batter, a new batting coach. You know, some management consultant has come in and told them how to do it. Supposedly, we're very suspicious of that. Uh, so we don't, uh, uh, we don't like uh, banjo hitters who suddenly uh, proclaim that they can uh, become power hitters and uh, and then we we try to figure out what their attitude is towards shareholders and and uh, that isn't uniform either uh, throughout corporate America it's far from uniform uh, uh, we still want them to be in a good business though. I would emphasize that and uh, uh, we feel that uh, I mean when I, I, I gave the illustration of Tom Murphy in the in the annual report I mean no one Had either the ability, no one could top his ability or or integrity in terms of the way he ran Cap Cities for decades. I mean, and you could you could see it in in fifty different ways. I mean, he was thinking about the shareholders, and he not only thought about them, he knew what to do to forward their interests. And uh, in terms of building the business, he only built it when it made sense, not when it did something for his his ego or, or to make it larger alone. He did it when it was in his shareholders' interests and. Um, they, they're they not all Tom Murphy's, but when you find them and, and they're in a decent business, you want to bet very heavily and not make the same mistake I made by selling out once or twice, too. <laughs> zone, was that zone three or, yeah, zone four. Uh, yeah, th- my
5: name is Mark Hake. I'm from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. And I am very interested in your policies on diversification and also how you concentrate your investments. And I've studied your annual reports going back a good number of years. And there's been years where you had a lot of stocks in your marketable, equitable securities portfolio. And there was one year where you only had three in 1987. Um, So I have two questions. Um, Given the number of stocks that you have in the portfolio now, what does that imply about your view of the market in terms of is it fairly valued, that kind of uh, idea and second of all, uh, whenever you, it seems that whenever you take a new investment, you never take less than about five percent, and never more than about ten percent of the total portfolio, with that new position. And I wanted to see if I'm correct about that.
0: Yeah, well, on the second point, that there, that really isn't correct. We uh, we have positions which you don't even see because we only listed the ones above six hundred million in the last report, and obviously those are all. Smaller positions. Sometimes be, that's because they're smaller companies, and we couldn't get that much money in. Sometimes it's because the prices moved up after we bought them. And sometimes it's because we we may be selling the position down even. But uh, so we have no. There's nothing magic. We like to put a lot of money in things that uh, that we feel strongly about, and that gets back to the diversification question. Uh, you know, we we think diversification is as practice, generally, makes very little sense for anyone that knows what they're doing. Uh, they, diversification is a protection against ignorance. I mean, if you want to make sure that nothing bad happens to you relative to the market, you own everything. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that, that is a perfectly sound approach for somebody who, who does not feel they know how to analyze businesses. If you know how to analyze businesses and value businesses, it's crazy to own 50 stocks or 40 stocks or 30 stocks, probably, uh, because there aren't that many wonderful businesses at, that are understandable to a single human being in all likelihood. And it, and to have some super wonderful business, and then put money in number 30 or 35 on your list of attractiveness, and and forego putting more money into number one just strikes Charlie and me as as, as madness. And it, it's conventional practice, and it it, it may. Uh, you know, if all you have to achieve is, is average, uh, it it's uh, it it's, uh, may preserve your job, but it's it's a confession in our view that you don't really understand the businesses that you own. Um, you know, I base I mean as on a personal portfolio basis. You know, I own one stock. You know, it, but it's a business I know, it, and and it leaves me very comfortable. Uh, so, you know, do I do I need to own 28 stocks in order you know have proper diversification? You know. And, uh, be nonsense and within Berkshire I could pick out three of our businesses and I would I would be very happy if they were the only businesses we owned and I had all my money in Berkshire now I love it the fact that we can find more than that and that we keep adding to it but three wonderful businesses is, is more than uh, it's more than you need in this life to do very well and uh, uh, the average the average person isn't going to run into that. I mean, if you look at how the fortunes were built in this country, uh, they weren't built out of a portfolio of 50 companies. They were they were built by someone who who uh, identified with a, with a wonderful business. Coca-Cola is a great example. A lot of fortunes have been built on that. And there aren't 50 Coca-Colas. You know, there aren't 20. If there were, it would be fine. We could all go out and diversify like crazy among that group and, and get results that would be equal to owning the really wonderful one. But you're not going to find it, and uh, and the truth is, you don't need it. I mean, if you, if you have a really wonderful business, is very well protected against against the vicissitudes of the economy over time and 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 the competition. I mean, you know, we're talking about businesses that are resistant to effective competition, and three of those will be better than a hundred average businesses, at, uh, uh, and and they'll be safer. Incidentally, I mean. Uh, they, there is less risk in owning three easy-to-identify wonderful businesses than there is in owning 50 uh, well-known big businesses. And uh, uh, it's amazing what has been taught over the years in finance classes about that. But uh, uh, I can assure you that, that uh, I would rather pick, if, if I had to bet the next 30 years, on the fortunes of uh, of my family that would be dependent upon the income from a given group of businesses i would rather pick three businesses from those we own than own a diversified group of 50. charlie
3: yeah what he's saying is that much of what is taught in modern corporate finance courses is twaddle
0: You want to elaborate on that Charlie?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you cannot believe this stuff. I uh, mean it, it's a uh, modern portfolio theory and uh, yeah
0: it, it's it's <laughs> it has no utility. But I mean it, it it you know it will tell you how to do average but you know I I I I think uh, anybody can figure out how to do average in fifth grade. I mean, it's just not that difficult, and uh, it's it's elaborate, and, you know, there's lots of little Greek letters and all kinds of things to make you feel that you're in the big leagues, but it... uh, There is no value added.
3: (laughs) I have great difficulty with it because I am something of a student of dementia, and (laughs) I have...
2: We hang around a lot together. And I can ordinarily
3: (laughs) classify dementia you know, on some uh, theory, structure of models, but the modern portfolio theory, uh, it involves a type of dementia I just can't even classify. Yeah. Something very strange is going on.
0: <laughs> yeah. if, you find, if you find three wonderful businesses in your life, you'll get very rich. And, and if you understand them, bad things aren't going to happen to that, those three. I mean, that, that's the characteristic of it. That, uh, By
3: the way, maybe that's the reason there's so much dementia. If you believe what Warren said, you could teach the whole course in about a week.
0: Yeah, Mm. Yeah, and the high priest wouldn't have any edge over the lay people, and that that never sells well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, zone what, five, are we over there? Mm.
1: Yes, good afternoon, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, Board of Directors. wanted to ask, in looking ahead, do you see the trends of extensive outsizing, the offshoring, the downsizing, the expendable workforce, the right-sizing, the diminished commitment to company loyalty, and the greater emphasis on the short-term, quick buck bottom line versus your commitment to the long-term investment uh, affecting your pool of investment possibilities? and your decision processes, and uh, do you possibly think of creating new companies on
0: your own? Well, I think that the trends you talk about, or the attention devoted to them, uh, uh, could have some effect just in terms of how how the public and, and, and Congress may feel toward business. It, uh, historically, you know, every industry at all times is interested in 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 downsizing or becoming more efficient now if the industry is growing you can you can achieve efficiency by doing more work or turning out more output with the same people but you know if you go back uh, 150 years and look at the percentage of people in in farming for example farming has downsized from being a very appreciable percentage of the american workforce to a very small percentage and essentially that's released people to do other things so it's it's in the interests of society to do to get as much output in anything as it can per per unit of of labor input. It's very difficult on the individual involved, and and uh, you know it's 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 no fun. Uh, I guess it's no fun uh, being a horse when the tractor comes along, uh, or a blacksmith, and and when the car comes along. But the uh, the so I I don't. I don't quarrel with the activities. I quarrel sometimes with how it's done, uh, and and I do think there's been a certain lack of, uh, in certain cases, some empathy or uh, sensitivity in, in in terms of the way it's being done. You should try to make your businesses more efficient. We we hope we're not in businesses that will require us uh, to lay off people over time because we hope that physical output grows and that that uh, that uh, we become more productive and, and, and can keep the same number of people to, to get greater output. Dexter Shoe has done a great job of that over, over time. They've become more and more productive, but they've sold more shoes instead of selling the same number of shoes and letting people go. But sometimes industry trends, I mean, at World Book, we have fewer people than we had a, a year or two ago, and we, we, didn't, we don't have any answer to that. Over time, we got out of the textile business. I wish we didn't have to, but we did not know how to run a textile company in New England and compete effectively. Uh, Like I say, I would, I love avoiding those businesses and to the extent we can, we will. I mean, GEICO is going to add people over time and I think Berkshire Hathaway is going to add people over time, but I can't, but it is in the interest of society to do jobs more effectively. It's also in the interest of society, it seems to me, for to take care in some way of the people that are affected by uh, uh, that activity. And either, in some cases, it's, it may be retraining, but in other cases, you know, it doesn't work so well if you're 55 years old and you've been working in a textile mill all your life, and all of a sudden the guy that runs the place can't make any money out of, out of selling your output. I mean, that's not the fellow's fault that been working in the textile mill for 30 years. So there's a balance in that. I think that the attention that's come about lately I think there's to some degree it was a media fad based on on some particularly dramatic examples of a, a couple of companies. I, I don't think there is more displacement going on now as a percentage of the labor force. Annually than there was 10 years ago in terms of uh, in, in terms of reconstituting what people do, but it's gotten a lot of attention lately. There could be a backlash on that uh, in terms of corporate tax rates or a number of things, and and, and we might feel it in that direction. We want at Berkshire to do everything as efficiently as we can. Part of that, in a big way, is not taking on a lot of people we don't need. I mean. Uh, 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 a lot of the mistakes that are being corrected now are because people got very fat and their businesses got very fat in the past and took on all kinds of people they don't need. We see that in a lot of businesses that we're exposed to. And and as long as they're very prosperous, really no one does very much about it. And then they, when time comes, they all of a sudden find out they can get way more output. The oil companies are a classic example. You know, the, the, uh, the people probably actually needed to, produce, refine, and, and market oil probably hasn't changed that much, but if you look at the employment relative to, to the uh, barrels produced, refined, and, and, and marketed, it's gone down dramatically over 20 years ago. To me, it just means that they weren't being run that well 20 years ago, and, and it never should have occurred in the first place. Uh, we, uh, we don't want to take on more people than we need in any of our businesses because we don't want to lay people off either. Charlie.
3: Well, if you put it in reverse, you would say name a business that has been ruined because it was over-downsized. I cannot think of a single one, but if you asked me to name businesses that were half-ruined or ruined by bloat, I mean, I could just rattle off name after name after name. It's gotten fashionable to assume that Downsizing is wrong? Well, it may have been wrong to let the business get so fat that it eventually had to downsize. But if you've got way more people than are needed in the business, uh, I see no social benefit in having people sit around on half-employed or, or or unemployed.
0: And you're very likely to compete against some guy, some guy at some point who doesn't have more people around than needed in the business, too. But it doesn't change. If- The people involved, they've got real problems, and-
3: uh, Warren, can you name one that has been ruined by over downsizing? There must be one, but-
0: Well, it's like Eisenhower said about Nixon, give me a week and I'll come up up with- (laughs) (laughs) How about zone six?
6: Buffett, Mr. Munger. I'm Walter Kay of New York City. We're glad to have you here, Walter. <laughs> what? We're thank glad to have you here. Walter's been a good thank friend Thank you him. very, very much. You just make me more of an egomaniac, a humble <laughs> egomaniac by saying that. I don't know if uh, Mr. Munger's wife is here and Mrs. Uh, Buffett is here, but back east where I come from in New York, they say when, people, when men are successful, it's their wife's doing, but if they're a failure, it's because they're lazy. <laughs> but anyhow, I just wanted to, uh, again, thank you very much You've done such great things for our family. It's absolutely incredible. And to those of you who don't know these two gentlemen, besides being financial geniuses, and you all know Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger too, they're the finest human beings you'll ever meet. I mean, just the way they explain this downsizing is the most intelligent thing I've ever heard. And eventually, like, you know, these people eventually find work. They have to be re-educated and everything like that. But one point of business I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind. I have been noticing that there have been a tremendous amount of new capital going into reinsurance carriers. And I was wondering if you could make a few comments about that, if you think that will affect the reinsurance business, uh, have any effect on the insurance business in general? Because as you know better than I, we're still in a very soft market, and there isn't a month that goes by that I don't hear of some new reinsurance carrier, whether in Bermuda or London or somewhere. Thank you.
0: Okay. Walter knows more about insurance than I do, but I'll nevertheless uh, comment on that. The uh, there has been a fair amount of, of capital, and there was a rush of it about, I'd say, maybe three years ago into the reinsurance business, but there's been capital come in, and, uh, and th- that is negative for our business. I mean, because any capital that's brought in basically will get employed. We are willing at Berkshire, and we do it. Uh, we are willing to uh, sit, sit on the sidelines uh, in the, the reinsurance business we'll offer quotes but somebody that will will cut those prices substantially if they've got a lot of capital and want to keep busy and if you've got a lot of capital in this business or if you've attracted a lot of capital you will do something you you, you might like to do something smart but if need be you'll do something dumb you'll 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 rationalize it so you think it's smart but you'll you you will do it you won't just sit there and write to shareholders at the end of the year and said you know, we asked you for $300 million last year, and we'd like to report that it's all safely in a bank account at Citicorp. It, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, so they will go out and do something. People don't like to sit around all day and do nothing, and that means that prices will get cut under certain circumstances. And those circum, that's happening now. We will at our at, at Berkshire. We do have a rule about downsizing on that, and we have promised people at all of our insurance operations that. We will never have layoffs uh, because of a a drop in volume. We do not want the people who run our insurance business to feel they have to write X dollars in order to keep everybody there. We can afford. We can afford some overhead around that's costing us a little money from, for, uh, for lack of using it at full capacity, because it isn't that much relative to the, the size of a of our insurance operation. Uh, what we can't afford are people feeling some, some uh, internal compulsion to keep writing business in order to keep their jobs. So we have a, we have a strong uh, policy on that, and if, if the business falls away in terms of price, uh, we won't be doing business, but we will be around to uh, do business in a big way. Uh, when the circumstances reversed. They reversed in the casualty business for a while in 1985 or thereabouts, and and we did a tr- terrific amount of business. They uh, they reversed in, in catastrophe reinsurance four or five years ago, and we became very active in that. And we will have times uh, that, that are very good for us in insurance. It's a lot like investments. If you feel you have to invest every day, uh, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. It just it isn't that kind of a business. You have to wait till you get the fat pitch, and in insurance, uh, it's similarly. You 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 do not. If, if we had a budget for premium volume for our insurance companies, it would be the dumbest thing we could do because they would meet the budget. I, they could meet any budget I set out. I could tell some operation that wrote 100 million last year to write 500 million this year, and they would meet it. You know, and I would be paying the bills for decades to come. So it it. It's a very illogical way to try and plan 8 or 10% a year growth. Now, Geico is a different story in that Geico uh, is a business that is the low-cost operator and can attract from a huge pool um, business at, a, I think, a very good rate uh, of growth uh, simply by letting people know what's available out there. Uh, So that is a business that... That I see growing under almost any circumstances, but our, our reinsurance business will will uh, swing around enormously in terms of volume based on on uh, what the competitors doing, and what the competitors are doing depends to a great extent on how much money they've got burning a hole in their in their pocket. And uh, uh, right now it's going one direction, but it it will change. I mean, it uh, just like investment markets change. You know, I, I, I've been through at least a half a dozen periods where people think, you know, they're never going to get a chance to buy securities at intelligent prices. And it always changes. In insurance business, uh, people that misprice their policies will pay the price for it, and and the world will still need insurance, and we will still be there. Zone 7? Oh, we don't have any. I guess we
7: have everybody in here now, so we'll go back to Zone 1. Mr. Buffett, salutations from Portugal. I am from Portugal. My name is Erculano Furtado. I have been the shareholder of your company since it was traded in on the Nasdaq, and I hold the shares and went on accumulating year after year whenever funds were available and were disp- at my disposal. Now, a little bit about my history. As a student, I'm from India. I was born in India, of Indian parentage, and my parents were very modest and could not afford me higher education. I started my school. Uh, uh, I think think maybe you better just get to the question, though, if you will, please. And then started writing insurance, life insurance for a uh, a company which was a subsidiary of American life. My question now is this. I am now living in Portugal, and I see that the European market is developing, and Berkshire Hathaway is having a very big slice of insurance investments. They don't seem to be operating in the new markets that are emerging in Europe and as well as in countries like India or the Pacific area, where the human, two-thirds of human beings are living. Is there a policy or a plan on the part of Bakshar Hathaway to diversify and internationalize their insurance business? This is my only question.
0: Thank you. the reinsurance business of, of uh, Berkshire Hathaway is uh, is uh, totally international. I mean, we uh, we uh, deal with risks all over the world. We deal with companies uh, all over the world, uh, uh, and that's the nature of the reinsurance business generally. Although there might be some that would be more specialized to this country, but uh, uh, we are quite willing. To take on risks around the world, although they have to be risks with a large premium. I mean, that's the nature of our reinsurance business. Uh, we're not in the retail end of the business, but we do that. Uh, we do that worldwide, uh, and we'll continue to do that worldwide because there are there are huge risks that that. Uh, that exist for primary insurers around the world, and they need somebody to lay them off on. Now, whether they will pay the proper price is another question, and it may be a little more difficult in a few jurisdictions to do business than others, but that's an international operation. GEICO has two and a fraction percent of the U.S. auto market, and we have about two and a half million policyholders. There are over 100 million in the country. and uh, there is such an opportunity here that it would be diversionary to go into uh, to, uh, other countries with, uh, with GEICO. At, uh, uh, there's been a firm that was very successful over in England that introduced a somewhat GEICO-like operation about 10 years ago, and they, they did very well. They are now encountering more competition, and their results are falling off somewhat. But uh, there's, there, there's a huge potential for Geico in this country, and I, I would not want the management of of, of Geico uh, to be going off in other directions now. When there's so much, uh, so much to be done here. I mean, three percentage points on our growth rate here, for example, uh, you know, would be 75 million or so of, uh, of of volume, and that in turn would keep compounding over time. Well, that. Uh, there's too much to do here before we set up some startup operation uh, around the world, and and there are actually various problems in in a lot of jurisdictions in to run a, a Geico-like operation. Although I wouldn't say that that prevails every place. I mean, there there could be opportunities, but the opportunity here in this country is is huge, and uh, the management of Geico is focused. I, I love focused management. But uh, management of if you read the Coca-Cola annual report, you will not get the idea that. Roberto Goizueta is thinking about a whole lot of of things other than Coca-Cola, and and I have seen that work time after time. And and when they lose that focus, uh, as actually did Coke and Gillette both at what one point twenty to thirty years ago, somewhat, it shows up. I mean, it it it, uh, it two great organizations were not hitting their potential uh, twenty years ago, uh, and then they became refocused. And what a difference it makes. It makes tens of billions of dollars worth of difference in terms of market value. GEICO actually started, uh, they, they started fooling around in a number of things uh, in the early 80s, and uh, they paid a price to do it. They paid a very big price. They paid a direct price in terms of, uh, in terms of the cost of those things because they almost all worked out badly, and, and then they, uh, they paid an additional price in the loss of focus on the main business. That will not happen with, with the present management. Uh, Tony Nishley thinks about nothing else but, uh, but uh, doing, carrying the GEICO message to people who, that 97.5% or so, that are not policyholders. And that will work very well for us over time. Charlie?
3: We are indirectly in uh, all of these emerging markets through Coca-Cola and Gillette. So it, it isn't
0: true that we're totally absent. No, they, well, at Coca-Cola, the international markets are 80% of of profits. Actually, a little more. Gillette, uh, uh, I think they're about 70% or so. So the uh, we love the international aspects of the Coca-Cola or Gillette businesses, and and that's a that's a very major attraction. But the management of those companies is focused on that. But they are doing, they have distribution systems, and they have they have recognition. And, They've got a lot of going for them over there, and they're, but the, the beauty of it is that they're maximizing uh, what they do have going for them, which was not the case uh, 20 years ago. They just sort of let it go more by default, and they started fooling around with a lot of diversification, and you know, basically that has not worked that well. So we, we, we like focus. We love focus.
3: Yeah, and doing it indirectly as we've done, uh, one can argue that uh, we thereby do it a lot better.
0: we won't explore the implications of that. (laughs) Zone two.
4: My name is George Olson. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I have a couple quick questions for you. Uh, First of all, I'd like to have your comments on uh, the U.S. Air Preferred that uh, there are several quarters and rears on. And secondly, I was wondering about the uh, Borsheim's report from yesterday, you usually comment on that.
0: (laughs) Well, Susan Jock, who runs Borsheim's, called me this morning. her voice was hoarse but happy <laughs> and uh, uh, Borsheim's uh, that comparable day last year was the biggest day of the year and it was about 60% up uh, this year so I'm uh, you've, you've done your part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: We uh, are starting a new custom at uh, Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings. A shareholder came up to me and asked for my autograph on his sales slip from Borsheim's, which was a $54,000 watch. Now, that is the kind of autographs we like to give. (laughs) And so, our message to you all is, go thou and do likewise.
0: Uh, It wasn't a member of Charlie's family, incidentally. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, US Air preferred, as as I mentioned in the annual report, you know, it it looks a, considerably better than it did uh, 18 months ago or thereabouts. But their fundamental problem, and Steve Wolf has said this, the new CEO of U.S. Air, the fundamental problems are there, and they either address and correct those fundamental problems, or those problems will address and correct them. And uh, the uh, you know they they they're they're uh, their costs are out of line. Their costs are those that are. Are uh, relics of a regulated, protected environment, and they are not in a regulated, protective environment. And so far, they have not had any great success in in, in, in correcting the situation. i knowing Mr. Wolf. I'm sure he is, you know, focused entirely on getting that changed, and he will need to get it changed. Uh, uh, and he his record has been. Uh, Pretty successful at that, so we are we're a lot better off with our U.S. preferred air preferred than we were 18 months ago. But uh, it still is is uh, a mistake I made, and we uh, uh, we would have lot been a lot better off if I'd uh, if I just uh, as Charlie says, gone out to a bar that night instead. (laughs) (laughs) You got any comments, Charlie? Yes, sir. He doesn't want to comment. It may sound like it's his deal, but.
3: It's plainly worth a lot more than it was last year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with that, we'll move to zone three. <laughs> Hi,
5: David Winters, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Um, without ruining my fun, could you give me a few hints about how I should think about calculating the intrinsic value of the insurance businesses? And secondly, um, I'm wondering about. And not that you can foretell the future, either one of you, but with regards to newspapers, is there any concern that it goes the way of the printed World Book and blue chip stamps?
0: It, it could have. I, I think it's very, and I'll answer the second part first. I think it's very unlikely, very, very unlikely, you know, down to a few percentage points, that, that newspapers will go the way of, of blue chip stamps. Uh, World Book is a different story. World World Book has got; they have a reasonable shot at a at a decent future, but it's not automatic. But uh, the newspaper, it may be configured somewhat differently. It may get a different percentage of its revenue from circulation and advertising. That does. I mean, there may be some evolutionary type changes in it, but it it uh, it's still a bargain. It is a bargain to the. uh, To anybody that is interested in their community, it's still a a bargain to a great many advertisers. We spend a lot of money advertising in in newspapers in our various businesses. And we feel we are getting our money's worth, obviously. And it works. But uh, it just doesn't have the lock uh, that it used to have uh, on the business. Now what was the other question about Did you want to repeat the first one? Although, yeah, the question about the insurance business, the intrinsic value, the, I would say this. Um, we have, I'm not going to give you a precise answer, but I will tell you this. We, we have $7 billion presently afloat. That's the money we're holding that belongs to someone else, but that we have the use of. Now, if I were asked would I trade that for $7 billion Uh, dollars and not have to pay tax on the gain that would result if I did that but I would then have to stay out of the insurance business forever total forever non-compete clause of any kind in insurance would I accept that and the answer is no now that is not because I wouldn't rather I would rather have seven billion afloat than seven billion of net proceeds of free money it's because i expect the seven billion to grow and if i'd made that trade that i'm just suggesting now if i'd made that 27 years ago and said will you take 17 million for the the float you have no tax to be paid float for which you just paid eight million seven when we bought the companies and would and and gotten out of the insurance business i might have said yes in those days but it oh you would have you been, to. yeah <laughs> yeah
3: no, yeah. uh, he, he keeps learning. That's one of his
0: tricks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's probably true in this case. I'm not sure about other cases, but it, it, it would have, it would have been a terrible mistake. It would have been a mistake to do it ten or twelve years ago with three hundred million. It, it is, it is not worth seven billion dollars to us to forego being in the insurance business for forever at Berkshire Hathaway, even though it would all be, you know, it would be, it would, it were non, if it were non-taxed profit, so we got the full $7 billion, pure addition to equity, we would not take it. And uh, we wouldn't even think about it very long. So as Charlie says, that is not, that is not the answer that we would have given some time back, but uh, it's a very valuable business. It has to be run right. I mean, GEICO has to be run right, reinsurance business has to be run right, national indemnity, home state company, they all have to be run right. And it's not automatic. But they have the people, the distribution structure, the reputation, the capital strength, the competitive advantages, they have those in place. And if nurtured, you know, they can become more valuable as time goes by. Zone four. Uh,
4: yes, I'd like to ask the Chairman and Mr. Munger about Freddie Mac. A few years ago, I think they're earning most of their money from the guarantee fees and the float. Now they've got the huge balance sheet, uh, a lot of short-term liabilities. Do you think it's a more risky business now and that the, uh, the spread might go away in some you know, less than foreseen event?
0: Charlie, I think he aimed that one at you. <laughs>
3: it's probably slightly more risky but I don't think they're taking horrible risks. It's still a very good business.
0: Yeah, what the question referred to is that formerly Freddie Mac emphasized normally just the guarantee of, of credit uh, and then uh, uh, passed all interest rate risk on to the market. Now they've retained for their portfolio a greater percentage of the mortgages that come through their hands. I think they've structured the liabilities quite intelligently to handle uh, what they call in the investment world the convexity problem, but which is that the borrower has the option of calling off the deal tomorrow and or retaining it for 30 years, and that is a very disadvantageous contract to enter into if you lend money. Uh, they've done a quite an intelligent job of a, of attacking that by callable debt and various things, but. You can't you can't address a problem like that uh, uh, totally. There's no way to set up some model that satisfies that entire risk. They've done a good job, but as Charlie says the the larger the portfolio as compared to guarantee fees, because you, you've still got the you've got the credit risk on the portfolio, and you've added a little interest rate risk at the extremes. And uh, uh, it doesn't keep us up nights, but it but it's uh, it's it's a tiny bit riskier than it used to be Zone 5 I, I, uh, i'm what am i the guy last to
8: like my family the last week i should have told the right thing my okay. mom, size it like I know you said do what
0: you want you know well you did, you did what you wanted i mean you followed my advice <laughs> <laughs> I'm batting 1,000, we'll see what you're batting next year. (laughs) Well, I, w- I won't comment on the three companies that you've named, but in, in general terms, unless you find the, the prices of a great company really offensive, if you, if you feel you've identified it. And by definition, a great company is one that's going to remain great for 30 years. If it's going to be great, a great company for three years, you know it ain't a great company. I mean, it, uh, uh, so, so you really want to go along with the uh, the idea of something that, if you were going to take a trip for 20 years, you wouldn't feel bad leaving leaving uh, uh, the money in with no orders with your broker and no power of attorney or anything, and you just go on the trip, and you know you come back, and it's going to be a, a terribly strong company. Uh, I think it's better just to own them. I mean, you know, we could uh, we could attempt to buy and sell some of the things that, that we own that we think are fine businesses, but they're too hard to find. I mean, we we found C's Candy in 1972, where we find here and there we get the opportunity to do something but they're too hard to find so to to sit there and hope that you buy them in the in the throes of some panic uh you know that you'd sort of take the attitude of a of a, uh, a mortician you know waiting for a flu epidemic or something i mean it, it, i'm not sure that that uh, i'm not sure that's a will be a great technique i mean it may, it may be great if you inherit it you know paul getty inherited the money at the bottom in '32. I mean, he didn't inherit it exactly. He talked his mother out of it, but, but, where, where? Uh, <laughs> it's it's true actually. Close uh, enough. Yeah, close enough, right? But he uh, he benefited enormously by by having access to a lot of cash in '19 in the early '30s that he didn't have access to in the in the late '20s, and so you'd get some accidents like that. Uh, but that's that's a lot to count on and you know if you start with the dow at x and you're and you're, you think it's too high you know when it goes to 90 percent of x do you buy well if it does and it goes to 50 percent of x it gets uh, uh, you know you ne- you never get the benefit of those extremes anyway unless you just come into some accidental sum of money at some time so i i think i think the main thing to do is find wonderful businesses that uh, is, is phil caray here the we got the world. Yeah, there's what there's there's, there's the, the the hero of investing. Phil, would you stand up? <laughs> Phil is Phil is uh, ninety nine. He wrote a book on investing in nineteen twenty four. Phil has done awfully well by 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 finding businesses he likes and sticking with them and and not worrying too much about what they do day to day. There's gonna be an, I, th- I think there's gonna be an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal about Phil on May 28th, and I, I advise you all to read it, and you'll probably learn a lot more them by coming to this meeting, but it, it, it's that approach of buying businesses. I mean, let's just say there was no stock market, and the owner of the best business in whatever your hometown is uh, came to came to you and said, look at, you know, at, uh, my brother just died, and he owned 20% of the business, and." And I want somebody to, to go in with me uh, uh, to buy that 20 percent, and the price looks a little high maybe, but, but this is what I think I can get for it, you know, do you want to buy in? You know, I, I think if you, like the, if you like the business and you like the person who's coming to you and the price sounds reasonable, and you really know the business, I, I think probably the thing to do is to take it and don't worry about how it's quoted, and it won't be quoted tomorrow or next week or next month. Uh, you know, I think people's investment would be more intelligent if it, you know stocks were quoted about once a year, but it isn't, isn't going to happen that way. So. <laughs> uh, and if you happen to come into some uh, some added money when, at some time when something dramatic has happened, I mean, we did well back in 1964 because American Express uh, ran into a crook. You know, we did well in 1976 because Geico. Uh, uh, Geico's managers and auditors didn't know what the loss reserve should have been the previous couple of years. So, so we've had our share of flu epidemics, but uh, you don't want to spend your life <laughs> waiting around for them. Uh, zone six.
2: I'm Joe. I'm Joe Condon from London. Uh, both uh, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger have addressed my question at, uh, in annual reports and at previous meetings here. This is my first time. It has to do with investment in a few great, high-technology stocks. Uh, I know your answer has been that if you don't understand it, and I can't after this, this performance, can't really believe that uh, both of you don't understand most of the, uh, the high-technology questions. But I'm thinking about not only Microsoft, but, say, Pfizer and J&J, uh, all three companies, which have already proven that not only do they have a, a great product, Proven management over 10 to 15 years, great market share positions, which are not easy to get into. And I frankly don't see a big difference in in the PE ratios, for example, if you say Coca Cola, uh, or, you know, against Johnson Johnson or Pfizer, which are very powerful companies. I wonder if either or both of you would address that question again.
0: Charlie, why don't you? um...
3: If you have something you think you understand that looks very attractive to you, uh, we think it's smart to do what you understand. If we'd been unable to find companies that fit our slender talents, we well might have been in the Pfizer's and Microsoft's and so forth, but we have never had to revert to it. We don't sneer at it. Uh, other people with more talent have, have found that a wonderful course of action.
0: We, we generally look at businesses, we feel change works is, is likely to work against us. We, we do not have great ability, we, we do not think we have great ability to predict the uh, where change is going to lead. We think we have some ability to find businesses where we don't think change is going to be very important. Now, at Gillette, the product is going to be better 10 years from now than now, or 20 years from now than 10 years from now. You saw those earlier ads going back to the, going back to the Blue Blade and all that. The Blue Blade seemed great at the time, but they, they keep, the shaving technology gets better and better. But you know that Gillette although they had that little experience with Wilkinson in the early 60s. But you know that Gillette is basically going to be spending many multiples the money on, on developing better shaving systems than exist now compared to anyone else. You know they got the distribution system, they, they got the believability. If they bring out a product and they say this, this is something that men ought to look at, men look at it. And, and they found out here a few years ago that the same thing happened when they said to women uh, to look at it. Uh, uh, in the shaving field they wouldn't they don't have they wouldn't have that same credibility someplace else, but in the shaving field they have it Those are assets that that can't be built and they're very hard to destroy At, uh, uh, so change we think we know in a general way what the so- soft drink industry or the shaving industry or the candy business is going to look like 10 or 20 years from now We think Microsoft is a sensational company run by the best of managers, but we don't have any idea what that world is going to look like in 10 or 20 years. Now, if you're going to bet on somebody that is going to see out and do what we can't do ourselves, I'd rather bet on Bill Gates than anybody else, but I don't want to bet on anybody else. I mean, in the end, we want to understand ourselves where we think a business is going. And if, if somebody tells us the business is going to change a lot, in Wall Street, they love to tell you that you know that's great opportunity. Uh, they don't think it's a great opportunity when Wall Street itself is going to change a lot, incidentally but, but <laughs> it, they, it, you know it's a great opportunity. Uh, we don't think it's an opportunity at all. I mean we, we, it scares the hell out of us because we don't know how it's going to how things are going to change. We are looking, you know when people are chewing, chewing gum, we, we have a pretty good idea what how they chewed it 20 years ago and how they'll chew it 20 years from now. And we don't really see a lot of technology going into the art of the chew, you know. But, uh, <laughs> so that, as, and as long as we don't have to make those other decisions, why in the world should we? I mean, you know, if I, at, uh, all kinds of things we don't know. And so why go around trying to bet on things we don't know when we can bet on the simple things? Zone one see the shareholders like a <laughs> sticking with the simple ones so they understand us yeah uh,
4: good afternoon Warren uh, Jerry Zucker Los Angeles California in the uh, annual report uh, the second largest holdings of unsecured securities are labeled uh, uh, others could you please expand on some of the holdings there like do we still own PNC and our we're supposed to
0: be buying Big Macs, as the press has reported. Yeah. Well, actually, it's a very descriptive title, others. That, uh, uh, we, uh, we do that for several reasons. Uh, but one is that we have no interest in people uh, buying Berkshire, or looking at the Berkshire Report, or anything else, in order to generate investment ideas for themselves. Some people may do it, but we, we, are, not, we are not in that business. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders are not being paid for that. There's no way it benefits the owners of the company. So uh, we, will, we will not disclose in the way of our security holdings more than we feel we have to disclose in order to be fair about things that can be material to the company. And we have, certainly have no interest in disclosing them to people who who essentially want to use the information to try and figure out where our buying power may be subsequently or something of the sort. So we, we will keep raising the cutoff level and you will you may see more and more in others and I will say this there's there's a lot of speculation about what we do uh, in the press and I'd say about half of it's accurate about half of it's inaccurate and again we leave to you the fun of figuring out which half is right (laughs) yeah we hope you get a lot for your money in uh, in buying a share of Berkshire but but uh, but uh, we don't want to act as an investment advisory service Uh, zone two
4: Uh, David Coles, Appleton, Wisconsin, earlier you made reference to the vicissitudes of time. What are the plans to ensure that all the computer systems and companies in which Berkshire has an interest will function correctly with dates of January 1st, the year 2000 and beyond? And what will you do to reassure shareholders that we will not suffer serious business loss or failure? due to incorrect handling of these dates by computer systems?
0: Well, actually, I've got a friend that's quite involved in the, the question of, No, I'm serious about that, the, the, the 2000 question with computers, but that's the kind of thing I don't worry about. I mean, I'm, I will let the people who run the operating businesses uh, uh, work on that, and I'll work on capital allocation. And I have a feeling one way or another we'll get through it, but that, like I say, we have, there are a lot of things at Berkshire we don't, we don't <laughs> We don't spend a lot of time on a lot of things at the at headquarters that other companies have whole departments on that uh, uh, and we our managers have not let us down. I mean, I must say that we've we've got a group uh, at one business after another, and they focus on their business and they mail the money to us in Omaha, and we're all happy. <laughs> Charlie
3: I have the feeling that our people will be quite good at keeping the computer systems in order and with backups. I also have the feeling that few companies could handle a big computer snafu better than we could. I have the feeling the Coca-Cola stock would be there, the Gillette stock would be there, the Nebraska Furniture Mart would be full of furniture and know the customers. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think a computer crash is gonna do us in. Yeah.
0: You are, you're correct though that that is, a, that is a problem for for the computer world, but, but uh, as Charlie says, it'll hit other people a lot. A lot harder than it hits us. Most of the things we try to be in businesses that are that are fairly simple and that can't get all messed up. Uh, and by and large, I think that uh, that we've got an unusual portfolio of those. It, uh, and when it gets to our investees, you know, they they're going to worry about those problems themselves. We really worry about allocating money around Berkshire and and having the right managers in place. That that. If if we can do those two right, everything else will take care of itself. And zone three. My name is Peter Bevelin from Sweden. Uh,
4: you have said that you like franchise companies, companies that have uh, uh, that are castles surrounded by moats, uh, companies that are possible to you can have
9: some prediction five ten years down the road. But aren't businesses like uh, uh, sees candy the furniture business um, the jewelry business the shoe
4: business businesses that are hard to predict the the future five ten years down the road
0: what was that on the last part of it
3: aren't these businesses hard to predict five or ten years down no, the I road think, things think, like shoe business and
0: yeah I, I think they're far easier to predict than most businesses i i, I think i can come closer to telling you the future of virtually all of the businesses we have, and not just because we have them. I mean, if they belong to somebody else, then if I if I took the uh, the Dow 30, uh, excluding the ones we own, or we, or or uh, you know the first hundred companies alphabetically on the New York Stock Exchange, I think they're I think ours are way easier uh, to predict. they they they're they're fair. They're, they tend to be fundamental things, fairly simple. Uh, rate of change is not. Not fast. Uh, so I, I I feel pretty uh, pretty comfortable. I think when you look at, at at Berkshire five years from now, the businesses we have now will be performing pretty much as we've anticipated at this time. I hope there are some new ones, and I hope there are big ones. But I don't think that we'll have had lots of surprises in the present one. My guess is we'll have had one surprise. I don't know what it'll be, but, I mean, you know, you th- that happens in life. but but there won't be a, a series of them. Whereas if you, if we were to buy, uh, if we owned a, a base metals business or or many, many retailing businesses I can think of, or uh, an auto business, uh, I'm not sure I'd know where we would stand in the competitive pecking order uh, five or 10 years from now. At, uh, uh, I would not want to, uh, try and come in and uh, displace C's candies, for example, in, in the business it does, at, um, or the furniture mart. It just, it's not an easy job. So I, uh, I don't think you'll get lots of surprises with the present businesses of, uh, of Berkshire, but the key is, uh, is developing more of them. Zone four.
9: My my name is Stafford Ordahl. I'm from Morris, New York. Uh, I was just wondering if the surprise could be coming from Disney because uh, it seems to me they've been coasting up until very recently on the efforts of a uh, uh, a person that's no longer with the company, Katzenberg, who is one of those rare geniuses like Spielberg that has his finger on the pulse of the American people and that uh, they don't come along every day, even in Hollywood. Uh, It might be a very different company now that all of his efforts are, so to speak, out of the pipeline. Yeah.
0: uh, Have you finished or? uh, Yes. Yeah. Katzenberg is a, is a real talent. I would say that uh, that by far, I mean by far, the most important person at Disney uh, in the last 12 years or whatever it's been, has been Michael Eisner. I mean, it, there's, it, 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 if you know him and what he has done in the business, uh, there, there's no one, Frank Wells did a terrific job in conjunction uh, with Eisner, but Eisner has been, the Walt Disney, in effect, of, of, uh, of his tenure. He, uh, he's, he, uh, he knows the business. He loves the business. You know, he eats and lives and, 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 and uh, breathes it. And uh, he has been, in my view, by far, the most important factor in, 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 in Disney's success. Now, they face competition. Uh, the, the money is in, you know, the big money is in in the animated uh, films and everything that revolves around that, because you go from films to to parks to to character merchandising and back, and I mean it's a circular sort of thing, which feeds on itself. Uh, there's there's going to be plenty of competition in that. I mean they've, uh, uh, you know, you've seen what uh, MCA and Universal's going to do with in the parks in Florida, and you've, you have you know what DreamWorks is going to do uh, in animation, and and uh, now you've got new technology in animation, you know, through Steve Jobs, and there, there's a lot of things going on in that field. So the question is, 10 years from now, what place in the mind, because it's a share of mind, it's not, you know, they call it share of market, but it starts with share of mind. And what place in the mind of, billions of children around the world, and their parents does Disney itself have, and their characters, uh, relative to that owned by other organizations and other characters. And it's a competitive world, so there will be people fighting for that. But I would rather start with Disney's hand than anyone uh, else's by some margin, and I would rather start with Michael Eisner. Running the place than with anyone else by some margin. So I, that that does not mean that uh, that it can't become a much more competitive business because uh, people look at the video releases of a Lion King and they and they salivate. That um, uh, you know you sell 30 million copies of something at whatever it may be 16 or 17 dollars and you can figure out the manufacturing costs and you know it gets your attention and it gets your competitors' attention. But going back, I, if, if I had to, if I thought the children of the world were going to want to be entertained 10 or 20 years from now, and I had my choice of betting on who is going to have a special place, if anyone has a special place, in the minds of the, those kids and their parents, I think I would probably rather bet on Disney, and I would feel particularly good about betting on him if, if I had the guy who has done what Eisner has done over those years, presiding in the future. Charlie?
3: Well, I think it helps to do the simple arithmetic. Suppose you have a billion children of um, low middle income uh, 20 years from now, and suppose you could make $10 per year per child after taxes from your position. It gets into very large numbers. and. Uh, And I don't know about your children and grandchildren, but mine want to see Disney. Mm -hmm. And they want to see it over and over and over again. (laughs) They don't want to see Katzenberg. (laughs) 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 Well, uh, (laughs) I mean, in terms of the trade name.
0: (laughs) It's a pretty good trade name. I mean, when you think about names around the world, it's interesting that uh, uh you know they're very hard to beat the name coca-cola but uh, uh disney's got a it's a very very big name and charlie's point that they want to see him over and over again and um, it's kind of nice to to be able to re-recycle snow white every <laughs> seven or eight years you hit a different crowd and uh, It's kind of like having an oil field, you know, where you pump out all the oil and sell it and then it all seeps back in over (laughs) seven or eight years. (laughs) Uh, Zone five. I'm
5: I'm Randall Bellows from Chicago. Thank you for this marathon question and answer period. We we enjoy it. Thanks. Uh, My question is on the security business, uh, Wall Street firms in general, and specifically what you feel about Solomon at this time. Thank you.
0: Well, we we uh, we know more about the security business than we knew ten years ago, and and uh, it uh, you know it is a tough business uh, to manage. There's a lot of money made in the business, and then the, it, throughout Wall Street, I'm talking about. There's you know there's very big sums of money made, and then the question is how does it get divided up between uh, uh, the institution and 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 uh, uh, the people there, and. You get to this question I've often used the analogy of you know would you rather if you're an investor and you get a chance to buy the Mayo Clinic you know that is one sort of an investment and if you get a chance to buy the local brain surgeon that's another one you buy the local brain surgeon and his practice for X millions of dollars and the next day you know what do you own and uh, uh, it's it's if you're buying the local brain surgeon, you would not pay any real multiple of earnings because he's going to have this revelation several days later that it's really him and not you there with your little stock certificate that's producing the earnings and it's his reputation. And he doesn't care. Imagine Berkshire Hathaway advertising brain surgery, you know, how much business we would do. So he, uh, he owns the business even though you've got the stock certificate. Now, if you go to the Mayo Clinic, no one can name the name of anybody at the Mayo Clinic unless you live within 10 miles of Rochester, and and there the institution uh, has the power. Now, it has to keep keep quality up and do all the things that an institution has to do, but, but whoever owns the Mayo Clinic uh, has an asset that is independent of the attitude of any one person in the place the next day. Wall Street has a mix of both, and there's some businesses that are more, where the value resides more in the institution, and there's some where the value resides more in the individuals. We've got a couple of sensational people uh, running Solomon, and they wrestle with this problem as they go along, and they they seem to be wrestling considerably more successfully currently than was the case uh, uh, close to a year ago. But it is not an easy business to run, and it's, and it's not an easy business to predict uh, unless you have a business that's very institutional in character, and there aren't many of those in, in, in Wall Street. Zone six. I'm sorry, we got a The microphone's over here. Yeah, just raise your hand, and the, the, the monitor will supply the microphone.
4: Uh, thank you. Howard Winston from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Had one question. Are you concerned about the rising valuations on the NASDAQ market where companies trade at multiples of revenues instead of multiples of earnings? The I, rising value
0: of what did you say? The
4: NASDAQ market oh. the, where they traded 10 times revenues
0: mm-hmm. or more, 30 times revenues instead of 10 times earnings. Yeah. Well, th- we don't pay much attention to that because there are, throughout the careers charlie and i've had in investing there have always been hundreds of cases or thousands of cases of of things that are ridiculously priced and phony stock promotions and and the gullible being led into uh, to to believe in things that just can't come true so that that's always gone on it always will go on and it doesn't make any difference to us i mean we we are not trying to predict markets we never will try and predict markets we're trying to find wonderful businesses, and the fact that a part of the market is kind of screwy, uh, you know, that is, that, that's, that's unimportant to us. We, we tried a few times shorting some of those things in our, in our innocence of youth, and uh, it's very tough to make money shorting even the obvious frauds, and there are some, some obvious frauds. It really is, it's not, tough to, it's not so tough to find the obvious frauds, and it's not tough to be right over 10 years but it's, 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 it's very tough to make money uh, being short them, although we tried a few times uh, way back. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we don't look at indicia from, from uh, stocks in general or from PEs or price-sales ratios or what other things are doing. We really just focus on businesses. We don't, we don't care if there's a stock market. I mean, would we want to own Coca-Cola? The eight percent we own of Coca-Cola, the eleven percent of Gillette, if they if they said they you know we're just going to delist the stock and we're never going you know we'll open it again in twenty years, it's fine with us you know and then if it goes down on the news we'll buy more of it so it, we care about what the business does yeah Norton did why don't you give a, 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 give him the microphone there thank you Warren. Yeah. Including me, out, out of order. It's but good to uh, it's good to have here. Norton Norton represents a family that uh, that came in 1956. Six. yeah. That joined up the, with the partnership and uh, been with us ever since.
8: Mm.
4: A very very fortunate uh, connection. And, uh, <laughs>
0: and, uh, both both ways, Norton. Both ways. And, uh,
8: careful,
3: Norton, we don't want you mobbed on the way out. <laughs>
4: but I might say that it all began with my father uh, discovering, uh, thanks to a professor of finance uh, that uh, was also at the University of Oklahoma, uh, Ben Graham back in 1940. And then uh, later when Ben Graham was about to retire, we were trying to find his protege. And uh, clearly that was Warren. And uh, so uh, he belongs to that long tradition. But... Uh, the question I wanted to ask was: uh, You've mentioned the uh, very strong uh, companies that uh, Berkshire has that are really international companies, like uh, Coca-Cola and uh, the uh, Gillette. But are you uh, considering, or have you ever thought of considering the uh, foreign companies that are undervalued, uh, or have you, for some reason,
0: uh, not included that in your universe of companies to consider? We, we've looked at at companies domiciled in other countries and we continue to look at companies domiciled in other countries we wouldn't you know we're happy for the uh, for the u.s and for atlanta that coca-cola is domiciled in atlanta but would we pass on it if it happened to be domiciled in england no we'd love it if it were domiciled in england too and and we feel that the important thing is the business not the domicile although it's a we're we're more familiar general in a general way with domestic companies that are domiciled here although they make they may make their money internationally and we feel a tiny bit more comfortable for just a tiny bit in terms of understanding the nuances of taxes and politics and and shareholder governance and all of that in something where we've been reading and thinking about it daily than some place where we've had a little less experience but we would love to find a wonderful business that uh, that is domiciled in, in, in any one of 30 or so countries around around the world. We look some. We don't look as hard as we look at at domestic companies. We're not as familiar with them. But but I have read hundreds of of uh, annual reports of uh, of companies uh, spread around the world, and we've owned a few, just a couple. They're usually not as big, so just getting the kind of money in, in many cases, is, is more of a problem. But, but some of them are big, and, and we do not have such a surplus of ideas that we can afford to ignore any possibilities. And if we can find something with a market cap, probably of at least $5 billion or greater, that strikes us as having our kind of qualities and the prices right and everything, we will, we will buy. Zone 1.
2: Good afternoon, Mr. Buffett. Uh, I'm Nelson Coburn from Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, I have one question I want to ask that hasn't come up here yet. Uh, where does the money sit that comes in, say, from dividends and whatever other income that comes into Berkshire that you're waiting to invest someplace else? Is it get someplace where it's t- taking in a profit, or is it just sitting gathering dust? Oh, nah. <laughs> well, <laughs> We uh,
0: we only have about four or five commercial paper names we accept. We're we're very picky about where we put the money. All gets invested. We do not have anything sitting around in the safe or uh, any place else. So it's all invested. But we do not get venturesome uh, in 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 the least in terms of uh, in terms of uh, where our short-term money goes. So we only have, like, like I say, maybe four or five approved names on commercial paper, all of which I approve. I mean, if anything ever goes haywire on this, it's my fault. Uh, right now, we have uh, we have maybe a billion and something uh, in uh, uh, in, sh- in relatively short-term treasuries, and, and we have a little extra in in uh, in some commercial paper, maybe. Uh, but you will never see us reaching for an extra eighth of a percent on short-term yields. It, some of you may remember the fiasco in the in Penn Central in the commercial paper market. And, and Penn Central, around 1970 or thereabouts, was paying a quarter of a point, as I remember, more than other commercial paper issuers. And of course, they one day, despite showing a positive net worth, I think, of a billion and a half or so, they said they... They had a lot of net worth, but no cash. Turned out, cash was more important, and so they defaulted. Now, the interesting thing about doing that is, if you're getting a quarter of a point extra, and you and you you, you came over on the Mayflower and you landed and you said, "Well, I'm going to apply myself to getting a quarter of a point extra on short-term money," and you didn't make any mistake until you got to uh, to Penn Central, you would. Sign from the compounding aspect, you you would be behind at that point, and I, I don't like a business that you can do right for three hundred years and then make one mistake and <laughs> be behind. So, so we uh, we 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 are very picky uh, about uh, about short term paper, but it it is all invested, and uh, when it's large amounts, it it probably will be in treasuries. It, uh, a couple a couple firms whose commercial paper we take. Zone two, please. My name is George Gatti from Zurich,
1: Switzerland. I've got a question with respect to Solomon. Solomon experienced quite a large volatility in profits and even revenues in the past years. Uh, What are your views on how this will develop in the future with respect to volatility in uh, profits and revenues?
0: I didn't get 100% of it, Charlie. Yeah, well. I can see. He can hear. That's We we make a great combination.
3: (laughs) Well, you can see we aren't wasting much around the joint. (laughs) Solomon's earnings have uh, always been volatile, at least all the time I've been around uh, the place. and I don't think that, that volatility will is likely to, to, to disappear. All that said, uh, uh, we very much like the people at Solomon, and they've done a ton of business with Berkshire over the years and in a whole lot of different capacities. and, uh, and they've done it very well. So we're high on the firm as a customer and uh, firms we like as a customer, we think maybe other people will like as a customer, and generally we, uh, we love it, volatile or no.
0: If you, uh, at, at Solomon as well as other firms of that type, they mark their securities to market, and so that changes in those marks go through earnings uh, daily, actually, but, but you see them quarterly. Interestingly, if you took Berkshire over the last 30 years, and mark to market as we do now for for balance sheet purposes, but not for income statement purposes because the rules are different uh, in that case. If you did that, you would see enormous volatility quarter to quarter in Berkshire's figures. You wouldn't, uh, would, I don't think you'd necessarily seen any down year, but you would have seen swings between a few percent and and perhaps 50 percent or something. So, and and if you t- looked quarterly, you'd have seen seen a number of quarters of losses, and you would have seen some great upsurges too. And the volatility would be e- extreme uh, if it had all been run through the income account. But accounting convention does not call for running it through the income account in the case of Berkshire, and it does in the case of Solomon. Uh, but the nature of their business is, is volatile earnings. The nature of most Wall Street businesses is going to be volatile earnings. Some may follow policies that, that tend to make it look a little less volatile than it might actually be even. Uh, the real thing that counts is two things, really. I mean, it's running it so that the volatility never kills you in any way, and the second is having a decent return on equity over time. And I think that the people the top of Solomon are very focused on that.
3: I think it's illogical for the credit rating agencies to mark down Solomon uh, as much as they do because the earnings are volatile, but uh, they're in a style business and it's, it's, it's their game.
0: Zone, uh, what we, zone three now? Yeah, zone three.
9: <coughs> yes, um, I have three quick questions. Um, do you have any uh, formal or informal way uh,
0: where the uh, managements, I, n- I know that you don't interfere with the management of, uh, of the holdings, but where they can cross-pollinate ideas, for instance, uh, you know, selling World Book through uh, the Geico channel or something like that. Yeah. Um, there, I'll answer that right now. There's very, very, very little of that. I, you know, maybe once in two or three years, maybe some idea might strike me as worth passing along, but I. They're, they're doing fine running their own operations, and we don't do it within Berkshire either. They, they really, they go their own way. Now, they know what businesses we're in, and so they can always go directly to somebody else, but, but they, don't need, they don't need me uh, to communicate. Zone uh, four.
5: My name is Mike Macy from Las Vegas, Nevada. My question is this. There have been some recent news articles on the problems at Lloyd's. What effect, if any, do you see the problems at Lloyd's having on an increase in the Berkshire insurance or reinsurance business?
0: Well, I think probably, I think it's fair to say that the problems of Lloyd's have helped us uh, because Lloyd's, had a terrific reputation. Uh, it was the first stop and usually the last stop for all kinds of unusual risks and large risks 20 years ago and the fact that they have lost some of their luster in that period has, has helped us and uh, you know, we didn't do anything to contribute to it but it, it, it obviously benefits us as a competitor uh, when questions develop about, about uh, an organization uh, which has been a premier uh, player in the industry. So Berkshire uh, uh, probably possesses more capital than all of Lloyd's put together and it, 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 it has established a reputation for being willing to quote on very large risks very quickly and to do exactly what it says. And it might very well be that in many cases we we would get a call before they would get the call now. So we've been a beneficiary and and and, and probably in a fairly good sized way uh, from their problems. And uh, uh, it's more difficult for them to uh, uh, to make inroads on us now than uh, would have been the case uh, uh, ten years ago. We 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 have a. I don't like the lay it on too strong. but We do have a preeminent position in a certain area of really large scale reinsurance that uh, will be difficult for anyone else to replicate. Now, they may not like our prices. Uh, There may not be demand for some of the things we can do. But if there is demand, we are very likely to get some very significant business out of that. uh, position, and we've seen it some uh, in recent years, and we'll see it more in the future. Zone 5. Mike
5: Sale from New York City with a question for Charlie. um, About the hundred or so models we ought to have in our head um, mentioned at the end of the uh, excellent Worldly Wisdom speech, Um, I'd like to know the most useful models on industry consolidation, uh, on product extension, on vertical integration and any models which explain the special cases when it makes sense to invest in um, retailing stocks. And if Warren has anything to add or subtract, I'd love to hear it. Thank you very much.
3: Well, I'm glad to answer such a modest question. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke about having 100 models in your head, but those are all great big models of, of uh, considerable generality that are useful over and over again. Now you're down into very complex submodeling when you get into a separate model for what's going to happen in uh, uh, industrial consolidations and and uh, retail and so on. And uh, I'm not up to all those submodels. <sighs>
9: The truth is,
0: you know, we're up to a few and and, but we take the general models and and and, you know, plug them in. And sometimes the light goes on and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, if it if it does, they they, they could be quite useful that. uh, uh, If you focus. uh, You do see repetition uh, of, of, of certain business patterns and business behavior. And Wall Street tends to ignore those. Incidentally, I mean that w- Wall Street uh, really uh, doesn't seem to learn for very long uh, business lessons. It may not be to their advantage to learn it. Charlie would—that would probably plug right into Charlie's mind. It, it's, you bet. Yeah. <laughs> it's better to, um, you know, to uh, uh, if you're out selling the future, it may be better to forget the past. If you're getting paid on selling it and not on uh, not unbetting your life on it in some way uh, one one situation at berkshire that really is somewhat different than many companies we assume and i unfortunately it's an error but we assume we'll be around forever so when we are in our insurance business we assume we're going to be here to pay every claim and we're not going to retire at 65 and hand over something to someone else and we we there wouldn't be any sense playing games on accounting because it would catch up with us later on and uh, whereas in many businesses, I don't think they have quite the same horizon on things. Uh, they do it at Coca-Cola. Or they do it at Gillette. But, but many companies are, are thinking about what kind of, I think, I'm afraid that more than you'd like, we are thinking about what kind of little pictures they can paint for the next four quarters or so. And and uh, uh, that's easy to do. But our problem is we're going to be around a lot longer, we think, than four quarters. So that's not an option available to us. And, mm-hmm. and we have to... We really run it as, uh, as if in the year 2050 or something, somebody's going to look and say, Did, how'd it work out? And zone, uh, where are we? Five or six, wherever the microphone is. Zone five, we got a mic over there? Maybe that was six, okay, we'll go to six. Could you get the microphone or do we have one in there? Yeah. I'll bring him the microphone. Particularly for the people behind you, it's a little difficult.
9: Glenn Rollins, Atlanta, Georgia. You state in your letters to shareholders that with your wholly owned companies, you reward them at a high rate when they release capital to you, and you likewise charge them a high rate when they need capital. Could you elaborate on that? Well, we. Some of our
0: businesses don't need capital at all, or need so little that it doesn't make sense to build it into a formula. So, we have certain businesses; no, those are the best businesses, incidentally, that take to take essentially no capital because it means that if you double the size of the business, you don't need any more capital. And and those are those are really wonderful businesses, and we got a few of those. But where our businesses do produce capital, uh, we can have all kinds of complicated systems and. Uh, and have capital budgeting groups at headquarters and do all kinds of things, but we just figured it's simple, simpler to charge people a fair amount for the money and then let them figure out, you know, whether they really want to uh, buy a new slitter or whatever it may be in their business. And it varies a little bit. It varies on the history of when we came in. It varies on uh, on the interest rates of the. But we generally will be charging people something in the area of 15% in terms of working out compensation arrangements. Uh, For capital. Now, 15% pre tax, depending on state income taxes, is only 9 to 9.5% after tax. So you can say that isn't even enough to charge people. But we find that 15% gets their attention. And uh, uh, it should get their attention, but it shouldn't be such a high hurdle rate that things that we want to do don't get done. Our managers expect to be running their businesses for a long, long time. So we don't worry about them doing something that works for them in the next year doesn't work five years out or vice versa you know where they where they where they don't make longer plans because they they see themselves as part owners of the business but we want them to be owners with a cost attached to capital we think it's awful frankly the way uh, businesses reward executives with absolutely no no regard for the cost of capital I mean a fixed price option for 10 years you know imagine imagine giving somebody an interest-free loan for 10 years you're not going to do it uh, and if a company is retaining a significant part of its earnings uh, and you, you give out a fixed price option for ten years, you, you know you they can do nothing with it but put it in a savings account and they'll make some money off of it. so we like attaching a cost to the capital. If we had options for for me and Charlie at at Berkshire, which would not it's not going to happen, but it, w- it would not be illogical. We have responsibility for the whole place. You could have some kind of a compensation arrangement that that uh, that that worked in respect to to how the whole enterprise fared, and it would make sense for the two of us. It wouldn't make sense for the rest of our managers because they work on specific units and you should have compensation arrangements that apply to those units. But assuming you had it for the two of us, which we're not going to have, I want to assure you. But we would, we would say the fair way to do that would be to have an option at not less than present intrinsic value, forget what the market price is, because believe me, it, uh, you know the, the idea of having the more depressed your market price be, the better your option price be does not make any sense. So we would have it at not less than intrinsic value. And then we would have it step up yearly based on something relating to a cost of capital, because we would say, why should we get free use of the shareholders' capital? And we could work out a fair stock option. That, that would be perfectly appropriate. We won't do it, but it'd be perfectly appropriate way to have us uh, compensated that involved an issuance, that an initial price of not less than intrinsic value and involved carrying costs. And uh, then we would be in a position still not totally analogous to shareholders because we wouldn't have a downside uh, that you have, but we would at least have the carrying costs that you have of ownership. And uh, uh, we worked that through into our unit compensation plans by having a cost of capital that, that like I say, tends to run about that 15% area. And if people can give us money, we should be able to figure out a way to do something better than 15% uh, pre-tax with it. That's part of our job, too. So we, we, we will pay them to give us back money.
3: Well, we really invented a more extreme system, and that is the executives can buy Berkshire Hathaway stock in the market for cash. And this is a very old-fashioned system, but most of them, uh, it doesn't take any lawyers or compensation consultants or and most of them have done it and most of them have done very well with it. Uh,
0: I don't know why it doesn't spread more. Yeah. People say they want their management to think like shareholders. Management, you know, they compensate going to have them think like shareholders. It's very easy to think like a shareholder to become one, you know. Yeah. And you'll, you'll think exactly like a shareholder. Right, right. It's not a great it's not a you know, it's not a huge psychological hurdle to get over if you actually write a check. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Zone one.
2: John Lichter from Boulder, Colorado. Are there some worthwhile books that you could recommend to us? And secondly, with respect to uh, Eisner and Disney, how would you define Michael Eisner's circle of competence and are you concerned that he might step outside it? Well, I would say that
0: he has proven himself very good at understanding what Disney is really all about. And, I, and you can look back to the predecessor management between Walt and, 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 and uh, Eisner, and they didn't really do much with that, if you, if you look at those years. It, uh, uh, you know, what, is this, what is special about, about Disney, and how do you make it more special? And how do you make it more special to more people? I mean, those are the things that you want to manage. And you've got wonderful ingredients to work with when you're working with something like Disney. I mean, it... Uh, uh, you know, one of the advantages we were talking about about the the Mayo Clinic and brain surgeons, and the nice thing about the mouse is that he doesn't have an agent. You know, I mean, the mouse is yours, <laughs> and uh, uh, he uh, he's not in there renegotiating and you know, every every week or every month and saying, you know, just look at how much more famous I've become in China, you know, or something. And, uh, so if you own the mouse, you own the mouse, and. Eisner understands all of that very well. I I would say he's been very skillful in terms of uh, how he's thought about it. I worry about any manager. It has nothing to do with Michael Eisner, but uh, Charlie and I worry about ourselves in terms of getting out of our circle of competence, and we've done it. Uh, It is very tempting, and it's, it's probably part of the human condition in terms of hubris or something that if, you know, that if you've, as Charlie would say, if, you know, if you're a duck floating on a pond and it's been raining and you're going up in the world, after a while you think it's you and not the rain, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that you're some duck. But,
3: uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
0: and, and we all succumb to that a little bit, but I, I, I think that, uh, I think Disney, Coca-Cola, July, I think those companies are very focused. I think our operating units are very focused and I think that gives us a huge advantage over the managers that are getting a little bored and decide that they better fool around with it. Just uh, how talented they really are. Charlie?
3: Yeah. Eisner is quite creative. And he also distrusts projections. And that is a very good combination to have in the motion picture business.
0: <laughs> yeah, Charlie was a lawyer for, uh, uh, what, 20th century in the yes. old way? Yeah, and he saw a little bit of how Hollywood operated and it kept us out of buying any motion picture stocks for about 30 years. He, every time I'd go near one, he'd regale me with a few stories of the past. So it's it's a business where people are, can trade other people's money for their own significance in, the, in their world. And that is a dangerous combination where if I can buy significance in my world with your money, you know, there's no telling what I'll do. <laughs> Part
3: of the business reminds me of a an oil company in california and it was controlled by one individual and people used to say about it if they ever do find any oil that old man will steal it (laughs) and (laughs) the motion picture business it's only about half of it that has normal commercial morals
0: Mm -hmm. we're not we're not applying that to disney (laughs) no disney disney is really uh, disney's done an extraordinary job for the shareholders and they they make real money out of movies. Most most movie companies have they made money for everybody associated with it, but but not a lot has stuck to the shareholders them. Zone two. Well, oh the books, Charlie. What are you reading these days?
3: <laughs> well, I'm almost ashamed to report because uh, I've gone back and and picked up the part of biology that I put up, should have picked up ten or fifteen years. Earlier, And if any of you haven't done it, it's a total circus what they figured out over the last 20 or 30 years in biology. And I, if you take Dawkins, The Selfish Gene and The Blind Watchmaker, I mean these are marvelous books. And there are words in those books that are entering the English language that are going to be in the next Oxford Dictionary. I mean these are powerful books and they're a lot of fun. I had to read uh, The Selfish Gene twice before I fully understood it. And there were things I believed all my life that weren't so. And I think it's just wonderful when you have those experiences. Uh, We always say it isn't the learning that's so hard, it's the unlearning. Yeah.
0: I made the mistake of taking Charlie up to Microsoft in December, and he became friends with Nathan Mervold. And they are corresponding back and forth with increasing... Fervor and enthusiasm about mole rats, and they they copy me on all these communications. So I'm getting to see this flow back and forth on the habits of mole rats, and I really haven't found a way to apply it at Berkshire. But I, I, I'm sure Charlie has got something he's working on. on that. Uh, he's gotten very interested in biology lately. At the, um, I like I, I you know I've always liked reading biography, but since the the computer's changed my life, I, I now find myself playing bridge on the computer about ten hours a week, and unfortunately. I didn't want to give up sleep or eating, uh, or, or or Berkshire, so the reading has been kind of light. On on investment books, if you're asking about that, I would I would recommend the first two books that Phil Fisher wrote, uh, back around 1960, Common Sense and Uncommon Profits, and the, sec, the second one. Those are very good books. You know, I obviously recommend first and foremost the Intelligent Investor, with chapters eight and twenty are the ones that you really should read. Two of the well, all of the important ideas in investing really are in that book, because uh, there's only about three ideas, and those two, two of them are emphasized in those two chapters. Uh, actually, I think John Train's Money Masters is, a, is an interesting book. Uh, I don't know, can you think of any others, Charlie, that we want to tout?
4: <laughs> I
3: don't know, we have such a fingers-and-toes style around Berger Hathaway. You know, you sort of count, and
2: yeah. the
3: three. I've, I've never seen, you know, Warren talks about these discounted cash flows. I've never seen him do one. <laughs>
0: it, it, yeah. It, if it isn't, There are some things you only do in private, Charlie. Yeah, if,
3: <laughs> it, if it isn't blue perfect, obvious that it's going to work uh. out well if you do the calculation he tends to go on to the next idea. Yeah,
0: it, it sort of ought to, I, it, it is true. You don't if you have to if you have to actually do it on with pencil and paper, it's too close to think about. I mean it ought to just kind of scream at you that you've got this huge margin of safety. I mentioned the three ideas. The three ideas I, I should elaborate on. One is that the think of yourself the think of investing as owning a business and not and not buying something that's wiggles around in price and 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 uh, the second one is your attitude which ties in with that, the attitude toward the market that's covered in Chapter 8. And if you have the proper attitude toward market movements, it's an enormous help in securities. And the, the final chapter is on the margin of safety, which, uh, which means uh, don't try and drive a 9,800-pound truck over a bridge that says, you know, capacity 10,000 pounds, but go down the road a little bit and find one that says capacity 15,000 pounds. Zone 2?
5: Uh, yes, Chip Tucker, Minneapolis. Uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, what market share does Berkshire have in SuperCat insurance business, and what's your outlook for both the market growth in that business and uh, the potential market share growth with, from Berkshire? You answered a related question regarding GEICO's auto opportunities. Are there other insurance businesses potentially worth expanding into, or is your focus on SuperCat and, off,
3: and uh, auto's opportunity enough? You know, Warren can answer that question a lot better than I can.
0: <laughs> I We, we don't... There, there wouldn't be any good market share figures in something like Supercat. We know, we know that a couple of years, and, and last year, I think, too, we had to be the biggest in terms of premium volume. We, we simply take on so much more than anyone else will. And we, and we were getting the, the, the calls on the big risks, you know, 400 million here or something of the sort. We had a quote we put out on a billion dollars on, on, on the, uh, the new, Mad, new, new Madrid Fault. Uh, here a little while ago, nobody else will be doing that. So we got market share uh, by our willingness to do large volume, by the fact that people knew we would pay subsequently. But we don't, while we know we were the largest, we can't can't give any precise figures. We also know we're slipping in that now, but that makes no difference to us. Uh, uh, We'd only be interested if we were slipping in profitable uh, uh, markets. Uh, And uh, uh, what was the second part of the question on that, Charlie? Okay. Oh, what other opportunities in insurance? business? we, just this year, we bought a very, very small company. The the managers of whom are are here, and uh, a very fine insurance company it has a little niche. It, I mean, it, it it will never be uh, huge or anything of the sort. But it's it's the kind of business that we can understand, and we like the people that run it, and we like the position they've achieved in the market. So we're delighted to be in it. We are willing to think about. A whole variety of things to do in insurance but most of them uh, we find make no sense but that will be we'll do other things in insurance over the next 10 or 15 years it's just bound to happen but i can't tell you what they will specifically be the biggest single thing we will do in terms of value though probably is grow geico but we will we will do other things and who knows what they might be we have expanded some in the stru- it's small business the structured settlement business from when we talked a year or two ago. And we are the preferred provider of structured settlements. Those are, those are uh, uh, annuities, essentially, that are payable to people who are usually the victims of a very bad accident. And uh, so they're very severely injured. Uh, people with injuries will probably last for life. And so we will be making payments to people who are incapable of earning a living Uh, may incur substantial medical bills for many decades, sometimes 50 or 60 years. Uh, Those annuities are provided um, by our companies to other insurance companies and to these injured people, uh, usually with the approval of the injured person's uh, attorney. Uh, And when the advisors to the injured person think who is going to be around in 50 years to pay to make money to this person who's been incapacitated, uh, they uh, frequently and in our view logically think of Berkshire. So we have become much better known in that over the last couple of years. It's not a big business and it won't be a big business, but it's a perfectly decent business and it's one where we have a competitive advantage over time. We don't obtain the competitive advantage by price, we, de- we obtain the competitive advantage from the peace of mind. That the uh, injured party obtains from knowing that that check will be in the mail 50 years from now, and that's the kind of business where we have some edge, and we'll find other things to do uh, over time. But uh, can't I can't? It isn't like we're looking at some specific area and saying we're focusing on this. We're we're aware generally of what's going on in the insurance business, and we're very ready to move. Uh, Uh, Mr.
8: Buffett, Mr. Munger, um, my family has been associated with Berkshire since 1968. So I asked this question um, with a great deal of respect for your integrity and your wisdom. I work as an inner city school teacher where there is a rising and pervasive sense of hopelessness. When I ask my students what would make you happy, their predominant response is a million dollars. Some of the richest men in the world, I wonder what your response to them might be. And as a second part of this question, the philosophical underpinnings of capitalism have largely ignored a systemic perspective involving issues of ongoing depletion of limited global resources exploited to sustain a market economy, widening gaps between the very wealthy and the severely impoverished, and an international view of America as a country whose primary values are greed and imperialism. As we move into the 21st century, do you see a need to re-envision capitalist premises towards original notions of democracy, justice, and humanitarian concerns?
4: Hmm. You can
3: get all of that. Well, (laughs) I will say this. I am higher on the existing social order than than you are. There's always plenty wrong with a, with a social order and, uh, and certainly there's, there are places where ours is, is uh, a lot more broken than it used to be. I don't think Warren and I have any wonderful solution to all the problems of the world, but, but, but wishing for a million dollars instead of some more tangible short step. Is the wrong frame of mind. That isn't the way we got our million dollars. But mm-hmm. yeah. well, I don't. <laughs> mm. Warren might give a different answer, by the way. He's. Uh,
0: no, I, I I would agree with the, the, the. I you know the wishing for a job. I I makes makes a lot of sense to me, and and uh, and figuring out how to get one, and then going from there. But it. Uh, there is. And always has been. That doesn't mean it always should be, but there, there is a tremendous amount of inequality. Uh, what you don't want is an inequality of opportunity. There, there will be a lot of inequality in ability. A market system like we have turns out what people want. If they want to watch a heavyweight fight and they want to watch Mike Tyson, they're going to pay him $25 million for getting in the ring for a few minutes. And, it produces what people like, and it produces in an abundance, and it's done very well in terms of production. It is much better to be in the bottom 20 percent in this country now than it was 50 years ago, and it's better to be in the bottom 20 percent of this country than, than in any other country. But it still isn't very satisfactory. The market system uh, does not reward. It does not reward teachers. It does not reward. I mean, it does not reward all kinds of people who do all kinds of useful things in, in in any way comparable to how it will reward entertainers or, or, or people who can figure out the value of businesses or athletes or that sort of thing. A market system pays very big uh, for something that will entertain them. People want to be entertained a, a good bit of the day and uh, pays better for people that will entertain and educate. I think I don't want to tinker with the market system. I don't think I should be telling people what they should want to do with their lives. But I do think that it's incumbent on the people that do very well under that system, uh, to be taxed in a manner that 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 uh, uh, takes reasonable care of anybody that is not well adapted to that system. That but that it's a perfectly decent citizen in every other regard, and that is uh, you know I don't want to I don't want to start getting into comparable worth in terms of how I tax, but but I but I do think that somebody like me that happens to just fit this system magnificently, but. Wouldn't be worth a damn in Bangladesh or someplace, you know, because it, what I have wouldn't pay off there. Their, their, their system would not reward that. I think that we get from society. The society provides me. This society provides me with enormous rewards uh, for what I bring to the game, it, it, and it does the same with Mike Tyson, and it, it does the same with some guy who's adenoids are right for singing or whatever it may be, and. Uh, I don't want to tamper with that, but I do think those people who are who are getting all kinds of claim checks on the rest of society from that are people who are not well adapted to that uh, system, but that are perfectly decent citizens in every other respect do not really, you know, fall through the slats on that. And and uh, I think progress has been made on that over the last 50 years, but I think we're far from a from a perfect uh, society in that respect. Uh, and I hope you know, more progress is made in the next 50 years. I don't think the wishing for the million dollars, though, is that, you know, it just it, it doesn't work that way. And, uh, 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 I think, but if you are lucky enough to have something that this, the market system rewards, you do very well here. And if you're unlucky enough to have something it doesn't reward, you do, you do better now than you would have 30 or 40 years ago, and you do better than in other countries, but it, I, I can see where it seems very unjust to look at somebody else who has just a little different mix of talents that that can uh, achieve claim checks in a way that keeps them and the next five generations of their family uh, uh, in, a, in a position where they don't have to do very much.
3: I would say that, that, right. that I like a certain amount of social intervention that take some of the inequality out of results in, 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 uh, in capitalism, but I hate with a passion rewarding anything that can be easily faked because I think then people lie and lying works and the lying spreads and I think your whole civilization deteriorates. If I were running the world, the compensation for stress under workman's compensation would be zero, not because there isn't real stress. because. There's no way to keep the fakery out if you reward stress at all.
0: There was a great article, in, and this applies to an earlier question. There was a very good article in Forbes about one issue ago that showed the occupational profile of the U.S. Uh, at a couple of different intervals going back to 1900. And, and one problem you can see just by looking at that profile, is that if you assume 20% of the the bottom 20%, however you measure it in terms of employability, whether it's measured by IQ or interest in working or, or energy level or whatever you want to do, they fit very well most of the jobs that were available 100 years ago. In other words, that you could do most of the jobs, which there were many, uh, with relatively uh, unimpressive uh, mental abilities and as jobs have changed, the profile of people hasn't changed. So there are more people that end up on the short end. Now, the good part of that is the society produces so much more that it can take care of those people one way or another. Now, the trick is to take care of them and make them not only feel but be productive and be, be part of the act. And, and <clears throat> uh, we've got enough product to do that, but uh, uh, the country turns out way more output than, than, than 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, we don't have, we, we're not perfect at uh, at uh, uh, figuring out how to make the bottom 20 or 30 percent in terms of abilities fit a new changing jo- job profile. I, I really recommend you look at that Forbes magazine because it, if you think through the implications of those charts, uh, I think you'll see what social problems have to be attacked. Zone four. <clears throat>
8: Edward Barr, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Earlier, you led us through a uh, discussion of the competitive position of Disney, and you also discussed share repurchase. I wondered if you could also lead us through a um, discussion of the competitive position of Wells Fargo, since they just effected such a large combination, in addition with perhaps some uh, discussion of their share repurchase, which is probably as large in percentage terms as uh, any company I can think of at yeah. the present time.
0: Well, Wells should repurchase their shares if they feel that they're repurchasing them below intrinsic business value, and that's a calculation that that uh, th- that they make. And uh, you should have to ask the question of them how they uh, what their calculus is of, of that. But that 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 will determine whether that share repurchase program makes good sense or not. Uh, the Advantages of an in-market merger are can be dramatic. Sometimes it just causes a bank to do uh, uh, what they should have done anyway. I mean, I'm not so I'm not as always as convinced that the economies come about through totally through scale as they are just from taking a hard look at how they run their. In the audience today he was here earlier. We the, the CEO of the Bank of Granite which is in granite north carolina and that bank earned 2.58 percent on assets i believe in the uh, most recent quarter annualized and had a thirty three percent efficiency ratio now that bank is four hundred million or five hundred million of assets you know it doesn't need to be five billion in order to get more efficient or anything of the sort it's got it's so much more efficient than any of those larger banks that had to be put together to get those ratios that it makes you kind of wonder about the underlying rationale but i'm sure that the mr forlines who runs that bank just focuses on on and he's been focusing on it for a lot of years just doing the right things day after day and it didn't take any in market merger or anything of the sort to to cause him to do that Uh, i recommend any of you in the banking business that get his report because there is nothing magic about the community of of granite north carolina nor does he work under laws that are way different than the rest of bankers or anything of the sort he just gets a record that uh, achieved a record that that makes all the rest of the records look silly. we had a fellow over in Rockford, Illinois, in the bank we owned back in the 70s, Gene Abeg, who uh, his brother uh, is going to be 104. There was a fellow from Rockford here that got got me to sign a note to Ed Abeg, uh, who will be 104 soon. I wish Gene had lived to 104. But Gene ran a bank in Rockford that when banks, the best banks were earning 1% on assets, he earned 2% on assets, and he did it. with way less leverage than anyone else and lower loan losses and big investment portfolio. And there wasn't any magic about it. He just didn't do anything that didn't make sense. And uh, um, there's a lot of room for improvement in the banking business with or without mergers. But I would say that Wells, on the record, has done an exceptionally good job of uh, running their bank compared to other big banks. And I would say that uh, uh, those two operations put together will Will be run a whole lot more uh, efficiently than if uh, First Interstate had been uh, run by uh, run on its own. It, uh, uh, it's it's a business that can be a very good business when run right, as the Bank of Granite or our Illinois National Bank in Rockford proved. There's no magic to it. You just have to stay away from doing something foolish. It's a little like investing. You know, you don't have to do anything very smart, you just have to avoid doing things that are ungodly dumb when looked at about a year later. And, you know, airlines and that sort of thing. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, that's the trick. It 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 is, not, it is not some great crystal ball game where you look into the future and see all these things that other people can't possibly see. I mean, what's complicated about Coca-Cola or Gillette or Wells Fargo, for that matter? And that's... Uh, uh, we like, we like businesses like banking if we've got somebody in charge of them that uh, is going to run them right. We've got a, I don't know whether Bob Wilmers is here, but he runs First Empire, which we have a good size investment in. And Bob just runs it right. You know, I, I, I do not worry about surprises uh, uh, from Bob or First Empire, and he'll do things if, if if he can grow and it's logical, he'll grow. And if it, if it isn't logical to do something, he'll he'll pass. He has no ego compulsions forcing him into some sort of action. And he runs a terrific bank. Try. Okay. Zone five.
1: Dorothy Craig from Seattle. And I noticed in the annual report that your recent accusi- acu- acquisitions doubled the revenue for berkshire hathaway and it seemed astounding for me i'm wondering how that's possible
0: well it's it, for one thing we started from kind of a small base <laughs> the uh but we the geico acquisition um uh, you know added three billion or so of revenues and and uh, um, actually more than that a little more than that but not much more and RC Willey and 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 Hellsberg's probably added 600 million or so in the current year, and since we were working off a base of three and a half or so billion, uh, those three acquisitions did double the revenues. We won't have many years when that happens. It's not any goal of ours to double the revenues or increase them 20 percent even or anything. We just we try to do whatever comes along that makes sense. And if there's a lot that comes along in one year that makes sense, we'll do a lot. And if there's nothing that comes along that makes sense, we'll do nothing. So it's there's a lot of accident in it. But, but uh, last year, you know, a fair amount happened, and uh, I'd love to see a lot happen next year. But we don't know at this point. Charlie, nothing. Zone six.
9: Me? Um, Yes. um, My name is Victor Lapuma, and I'm from the Virgin Islands. And um, uh, my question is on the JICO asset. Asset side. Uh, one of the things that makes Berkshire unique is the high percentage in equity as opposed to fixed assets. And Jekyll, uh as of uh, the end of the year, looked like a typical insurance company with four times the fixed assets as um, equity assets. And my question is, over time, will they have the same composite as um, as Berkshire on the asset side and the second part of that question is um, how how are the f- asset allocations uh, decisions being made at Geico after the merger as compared to before the merger?
0: The uh, the decisions at Geico, which as you say is about five billion of of uh, marketable securities, have been made and are being made and will be made by Lou Simpson. Lou has done a fabulous job uh, of running the investments of geico since about 1979 and we're lucky to have him there are very few people that i will let run money (laughs) running businesses uh that we have control over but we're delighted in the case of lou i mean it's it's one in a thousand or something but it but uh, lou has done a terrific job will do a job and the one thing we offer him he has the ability to do whatever he wants to do with those assets now He did not have that ability before geico became part of of berkshire because at that time there were certain ratios were necessary for which were understandably necessary that made sense where with geico as a standalone entity with its own net worth of a billion and a half or two billion and doing three billion of business it would have been inappropriate for him to take on a different configuration beyond a certain point in equities so he was constrained by the nature of the business he was in and its capitalization. That constraint no longer applies. So he with that five billion can do whatever he wants. Now if he does certain things, we, we we would need to provide backup to GEICO so that their policyholders would be protected under the most adverse of circumstances. But that's no problem for us. We could do it by quota share, reinsurance, we could do a lot of things. We could just guarantee their obligations. And we are in a position to do that. We haven't done it yet because it's not hadn't been necessary yet. But if if it made sense, if if, Geico, if 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 Lou wanted to be five billion in equities and it made and it made it made sense, we would arrange things so that the Geico policyholders would be every bit as secure as under the most conservative of investment portfolios. So, Lou has another string to his bow now, and and there may be a time when it gets used. He he's been great under the old system, and he may be better under this system. That's uh, very shrewd question, mm.
3: you're to be complimented. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That means it's something we thought about before. <laughs> before. But you are to be complimented, right. Uh, let's see,
7: zone one. Uh, Neil McMahon, New York City. Uh, Berkshire owns several companies, stock in several companies which are called permanent holdings. In the early 70s, we had a two-tier market, the one decision stocks, high PEs, 50, 60 times earnings. If that were to reappear again, would Berkshire's companies still be permanent or is there a price for everything?
0: Yeah. Well, there, there are things that we think there are no, there's no price for and we've been tested sometimes and haven't sold them. But uh, I, you know, my, my friend Bill Gates says, you know, has to be illogical at some point the numbers have it, it, at some price you have to be willing to sell something that's a marketable security forgetting about a controlled business but i doubt if we ever get uh, tested on on there's only a couple of them in that category uh uh actually there no, i won't comment on that <laughs> the uh we we really have a great reluctance to to sell businesses where we like both the business and the people so i uh, I don't think I'd count on seeing many sales, but if you ever attend a meeting here and there are 60 or 70 times earnings, uh, uh, keep an eye on me. (laughs) Charlie?
3: (laughs) The uh, so-called two-tier market uh, created difficulties, I would say primarily because a lot of people, Mm -hmm. companies, were called tier one when they really weren't they just had been at some time uh, tier one Uh, if you're right about the companies uh, you
0: can hold them at pretty high values yeah you can really hold them at extraordinary levels if you've got uh, it it's too hard to find uh, you're not going to find businesses that are as good so then you have to say am i going to get a chance to buy back the same business at a lot lower price or am i going to buy something that's almost as good at a lot lower price we don't think we're very good at doing that. We'd rather just sit and hold the business and pretend the stock market doesn't exist. That actually has worked out way better for us than, than I would have predicted 20 years ago. I mean, that mindset has, uh, or, or 25 years ago, that mindset is, uh, uh, there's been a fair amount of, of good fortune that's flowed out of that that I really, I really wouldn't have predicted.
3: Well, there you're demonstrating your trick again, you know, still learning. (laughs) A lot of people regard that as cheating.
0: (laughs) Zone two. (laughs) Alan Rank, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Knowing your aversion to technology, but your close affiliation with Bill Gates, Microsoft, have you ever considered either inviting him to be part of the Berkshire through the board or being involved to maybe solve some of the problems with World Book and taking it to the new technology? And expanding it, and on the other end, you also love insurance and the float. Have you considered the other businesses that would have that similarity, such as cemeteries and funeral homes, with their pre-need and their large cash reserves? The uh, Bill and I talked about Encyclopedia Business some years ago, but he was pretty far down the line in Incarta, quite far down the line in Encarta, actually, before I even met him. So it wasn't. My guess is if we'd met. Met earlier uh, that uh, you know there there might have been something evolved in that, but uh, he 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 had he had put a lot of chips on Encarta and had done a good good job with it. So it really wasn't it it wasn't a real option to work with him on 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 uh, on World Book. Bill also is very focused on his business, and I believe he's on the board of of some biotech company in which he's got a significant investment. But you you will not see him on the boards of, uh, at least I don't believe that you will, of, of uh, American corporations. I think if you look at the boards in the, say, up in the Pacific Northwest, where he has a lot of friends and knows the companies well, maybe grew up with some of the people. But I don't think you'll see him on anything which really doesn't uh, – which is just a business that doesn't grab him intellectually on something. And I, I do think there's one biotech company that he's involved in that way. And, it, you know, he'd be a terrific asset. But he he, he, uh, he really focuses on Microsoft. Uh, he has his board meetings, as I remember, on Saturday. They last, you know, all day. And uh, he, he goes after the business that way. Uh, he, he's not, he, he, I don't think he'd be interested in being on a bank board or an insurance company board because he just figures he's got other things to do with his time, and I think he's probably right. <laughs> Zone three? Oh, the question was about other, other kinds. We've always had an interest in float businesses of, of, of one sort or another, but, uh, uh, you know, Blue Chip Stamps uh, was such a business and, until it disappeared one day. We couldn't find it. We went, looked in the closet, <laughs> right, looked at, everywhere, out in right. the backyard. <laughs> Where was it? Uh, so. We we like that sort of business, but but most of most of float businesses the the costs are pretty explicit and and uh, like I said we don't like most insurance companies uh, as 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 float businesses we are not interested in buying the typical insurance business because we think the float will end up costing us too much we'd rather borrow money with an explicit cost attached to it rather than have the implicit costs of an underwriting loss with most company but we're always we are interested in businesses that that provide cash rather than use up cash. We're willing to have them use cash if the if what they use will produce high enough returns, but we've got this bias toward things that throw off cash. John? Sure. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, if we go into the pre-need funeral home business, that'll be the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh. Zone three. <laughs> uh,
4: Charlie's a difficult act to follow. I'm Robert Keeley from Washington, D.C. I have a brief comment and a brief question. The comment is that I think you may be considerably underestimating the interest there will be in purchases of Class B stock later this week and next week. I have at least 10 friends in Washington who are aware that I'm a Berkshire shareholder and that I was coming to this meeting, and they've insisted that I report back to them tomorrow on just what happened with the Class B stock because they're very interested in buying some of it. Now That's uh, anecdotal to be sure, but if you take that ratio of 10 people to even the, sh- the shareholders who are present here today, you're talking about tens of thousands of people who are going to be in that market. And my question relates to liquidity. On page 18 of your annual report, you say, and I quote, the prospect that most shareholders will stick to the A stock suggests that it will enjoy a somewhat more liquid market than the B. Could you explain that? It seems to me that if most shareholders keep their A stock, uh, do not convert it or sell it, that the B stock will be much more liquid. Maybe I don't understand liquidity.
0: No, I, I think you do. You understand it. And I'll, I'll elaborate just a bit. The, certainly in the first week, I would expect the uh, the B stock to trade far more, although I hope it doesn't trade like most new issues trade in relation to the amount sold. I, it's just the nature of a new offering that there's there's usually... There, there's always some flurry of activity sometimes I think it's quite excessive but and I don't think it will be with Berkshire, but there will be some flurry of activity but longer range, let's just assume that there's uh, four hundred million dollars worth of B stock out there will be 40 billion of a now admittedly you know I'm not going to do anything with my stock and 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 many people in this room have a very low tax basis and except they're under very unusual circumstances, have no intention of doing anything with their stock. So of that 40 billion, there's a, uh, there's a very significant percentage that you might say is almost inoculated against reaction to market changes. Uh, but there still is a very significant dollar value. There's, there's a fair amount held by, um, by funds, for example. Uh, and so the market value of what I would call the potentially tradable A, is likely to far exceed the market value of the potentially tradable B. Now, it may be that all of the B is potentially tradable, whereas only a small portion of the A is. But that 40 billion to 400 million ratio, I think, almost ensures that after the initial flurry, that the better market, and when I say better market, I mean the the ability to move large dollar amounts in both directions with a minimal movement of price, the better, the better market, not by a huge margin, but the better market is likely to be in the A. And, and frankly, we hope that it is. We still hope there's a good market in the B, obviously. But but uh, if you're talking 10 shares of the A, which is a $300,000 or so investment, I think that two months from now that it's likely to be that buying or selling $300,000 worth of A will have, slightly less of a percentage impact than buying or selling $300,000 worth of B, but not by a significant amount. But that's what I meant by that comment of having a, a slightly better market in the in the A than the B. And I, that's Im, important from our standpoint because if that situation became reversed and the B became the better market, then people would have a real incentive to convert from A to B uh, over time, and, and eventually the B market would dominate. We, we don't anticipate that happening. I think the way we've arranged it it won't happen, but it it could happen.
3: Yeah, well, I think we've also uh, created arrangements in the way we've written the prospectus and rewarded the selling brokers, uh, that tend to dampen demand, both individual and and institutional, and uh, And we sometimes accomplish what we try to do.
0: Zone four? Don't ask us for a list of those where we've got (laughs) Uh,
4: Dan Pico, Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, In the mid-70s, you wrote an article on how inflation swindles the equity investor and that the average return on equity for corporate America would be like 12 or 13 percent. Last year, the average was more like 20. Have the laws of economics been repealed or modified? or if not, what sort of calamities might occur as we revert to the mean? Yeah.
0: Well, I have been surprised by, by returns on equity. There's a, there was a good article in Fortune about two issues ago. Well, it was in the Fortune 500 issue, whenever that was. And uh, it discussed the question of return on equity, and it made some good points about how the introduction of putting post-retirement health benefits on the balance sheet tends to swell equity returns subsequently. In, in other words, it moves down the... the uh, the denominator in terms of uh, total equity employed. And, and there's been a lot of big-bath accounting where there have been write-offs, uh, so that counting that, I don't think it has gotten to 20%. But it, it's higher than, it's certainly higher than I anticipated uh, when I wrote that article. And I would say that it would seem very extreme to me in a world of, uh, like we're living in now, to have uh, equity cap, returns on equity, close to the average close to the 20 percent rate over time Uh, but uh, um, uh, it's it has surprised me uh, how high returns have been now you have had situations like like a coke for example where 25 years ago uh, they would not have repurchased stock and so they'd have piled up more equity in the business and coke's return on equity if it had been following the policies of of 1970 or 75 would be far less than than it is now. Coke really doesn't need equity, and so it it can it, it can earn extraordinary returns and very large dollar sums. To the extent that impacts the figures, that has that has that has some impact on them. To the extent that General Motors sets up many many billions of a, a reserve for post-retirement health benefits, that tends to make the return on GM look a lot better than than it did in the past when it wasn't even recognizing those costs and therefore had an equity that really was, was uh, much larger than the true equity. Uh, uh, so there have been some things happen like that, but all in all, I don't think under any system of accounting, the 20% returns for American industry are in the cards. Charlie?
3: Well, I, I agree. And I think that this business of having way more consolidation and the successful companies like Wells Fargo buying in stock, uh, I think that's had a huge effect too. Uh, I don't think it's actually gotten that much. Obviously, we had a long period of, of, uh, of real growth and so on, and, and, and I think that on average, business has earned higher returns on equity. But I think a whole lot of things have combined to, to uh, goose the results. I, I I don't see how it could go much farther.
0: Zone five.
2: Yes, um, my name is Ted Elliott from Connecticut. The press reported a recent investment you made in the real estate business, and I wondered if you would comment as to your outlook for that business.
0: Uh, well, that that that's just sort of a a, a uh, um, an asterisk. Uh, I over I've got. Virtually everything in Berkshire, and and I own a few municipal bonds outside and a few other things, but I don't want to buy anything that Berkshire's involved in. It just complicates life, and all the best things I like are, are in Berkshire. So every now and then, some little thing happens to hit the radar screen that is is too small really for Berkshire. And and uh, I'd, bought of, uh, I, uh, uh, I'd bought 100 shares of that company back when I it's called Property Capital Trust. I bought 100 shares of that back. When we owned nhp which had done a couple of deals with them so i uh my policy of reading every annual report in sight that can further my knowledge about anything i, I bought 100 shares and then i happened to see a year or so ago where they said they were going to uh, to liquidate so having some money around i i bought that but it's not based on any feeling about the real estate business any any uh sophisticated analysis of the company or anything else it's just it's a minor uh, personal investment I have no, I have no insights whatsoever. We've done a few things in real estate at Berkshire, but they've been large things. Uh, 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 and there was a brief period when there were a couple things that were intelligent to do. If we'd started a little earlier, there might have been a lot more things. But we we started a little late, so we're doing nothing now. But we listen to things occasionally. But we're looking, we're basically looking for big things at at Berkshire and. Uh, uh, we haven't found anything in, in real estate in a long time, um, and we may never, but who can tell? I mean, we, we got our oar in the water, and uh, the, the couple things we're in are working out fine, but they're, they're, not, they're not significant relative to Berkshire size. We'll go to Zone 6, and this is the last question because it's going to be 3 o'clock, and let's have number, Zone 6.
9: Uh, My name is Mike Nolan from New Jersey, my wife and I have been shareholders since 1984 and happy ones, thank you both. Uh, Two questions today, in the retail store industry, in light of Berkshire's outstanding 23% annual growth in book value per share and the industry's roughly 8-9% to growth in equity over the last several years, we wonder why would Berkshire exchange stock for securities such as these when the growth and the net worth of the acquired companies if they're anywhere near the industry average that you've acquired this year, uh, are one-third or less. To quote Bartlett Helsberg from the annual report, the diamond business is a very competitive industry.
0: Well, all, all retail is competitive, and both of those companies have averaged a lot better returns on equity than the numbers you cite for the industry. And the second you know, we have no way of making 23.6% in the future, so we do not use our historic, if we used our historical average, as a yardstick uh, uh, for new investments, we would make no new investments, because we don't know how to make 23.6 percent in the future. But we like, we like, we we regard the retail business as a very tough business. We like the records of those companies, their market positions, and their managements. And when we find a business like that, uh, and we feel very comfortable with the people running it, uh, we will make the deal. But we won't expect to make 23.6 percent on our money over time doing that. I'd like to thank everybody for coming. You've, you know, we've, I, I've had a good time the last couple of days, and I hope you have. <laughs>